Okay, welcome back to my podcast, the Steve and Sully Study. Um, everybody knows I've got a, a huge passion for business as well as boxing. I think there's parallels between real life, boxing and also business. And the next guest I've got in front of me is a podcaster, journalist, interviewer, author and uh, you know, a, uh, an athlete in, in, in himself. Tris Dixon, thank you very much for your time and welcome onto the podcast. That's great. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. No, no problem. So you've contributed best part of 20 odd years of your life to boxing. Um, quite a sort of basic question, Tris, is why did you, why have you decided, you know, many years ago to step into the boxing world and, you know, be, become a journalist and contribute towards the sport? Yeah, well, that's not quite how the way things went, went down. Um, so it was about 95, 96. Um, I left the school where I had, um, where I'd been, uh, I'd say there's no such thing as a good for being nicely bullied, but I'd been bullied for a couple of years and I didn't have a great deal of self-esteem. I was playing rugby at a decent level and it was pre-season. I remember, I think, like I said, 95, 96. And a guy that I played rugby with, said, um, oh, you know, for pre-season, while we're getting fit, should we go to the boxing club and, uh, and do, get some fitness in? So I was like, you know, kind of alien to me, um, but I said, sure, you know, I'd be up for that just to improve some fitness. And, I mean, by that stage, I had been a bit of a casual fan. You know, I'd stayed up for some Mike Tyson fights, and I remember I was I would have only been a kid, but um, I remember Ben fighting McClellan. I remember where I was that night. I was looking for my brother's birthday and we went to a restaurant in Southampton I made I made my family listen to it in the radio on the car on the way home and then we got in and saw the last half of the fight so that was sort of all a few years before I started but really it was then it then came from me starting boxing and then a few guys in my amateur club were doing quite well and they were in the amateur boxing scene magazine which sort of, sort of was in the old boxing news and I sort of then start buying the box of news to see my friends in the magazine and stuff. And then, you know, you start to read a bit more of it and learn a bit more about it. And it was a good time with people like uh, Carl Thompson, Chris Eubank, Joe Calzaghe coming, coming through. And so I sort of then started to get interested in it. Uh, the idea was never to, the, the, the journalism and the boxing were two separate things. I wanted to be a serious journalist. I wanted to go and cover war stories and I wanted to go abroad and I wanted to do higher level interviews with world leaders and all the rest of it, big time personalities. Um, it was just that boxing was my hobby and it's what I did. So the, it, it, it was only really when I went to university, my last last year at university, one of my lecturers said, well, hang on, you're, you're boxing here and you're writing here. Why don't you write about boxing? And it's sort of a big epiphany and I sort of never looked back. Okay, fair enough. It's quite a sort of similar story to me. I mean, um, I, I probably was slightly bullied at school. Not bullied, but like, I feel like back when I was like 12, 13, 14 years of age, I feel like the alpha male type people were coming out in school and I felt like people had a lot to prove. I, wasn't, I wouldn't say I went to a rough school, but I went to an all-boys school and there was always regular fights. So it was kind of, you were forced to either step up for, for yourself and defend yourself or kind of shy away. And I noticed there was a couple of guys doing boxing, amateur boxing down Bromley and Downham. So I ended up going down there after trying to convince my mum for a long time saying, look, please let me down, please let me down. And she was saying no, because 
as you've probably highlighted in so many of your interviews and also I think your books and stuff, Trish, people have a perception that boxing is just violent and it's just barbaric and they have kind of the wrong per- uh, perception of it. Don't get me wrong, violence is involved, but it doesn't always have to be that way. It can be c- quite controlled. Anyway, when I went down there, I've got to say, one of the best decisions I ever made early on is taking up boxing because without boxing, I don't think I would have got into business for myself. I feel like it's honed in on my emotions, my mindset, um, you know, that kind of, you know, when things get tough rather than shy away, it's actually fight, you know, press forward. And I think that's what it's done for me. So I wanted to, I know you said this in a few of your interviews about maybe bringing boxing back into schools or certainly allowing a lot more, you know, younger people to, to see the benefits of boxing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the biggest, one of the, the, the two things really that come with that is when you're being bullied and, you, and suddenly people realize you box, you're not bullied anymore. And secondly, um, it helps massively with self-confidence and self-esteem, even if you're not being tested. You know, it's good to know that you're prepared to put yourself out there. And I don't mean prepared to go and have a row, but that you're able to defend yourself and that you're fit enough to do the stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's you know, in terms of school, I think there's loads that can be that can that can massively help. You know, my son's 15. He, he, while he's not interested in boxing, he's interested in going to the gym, and I can't, I, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I think there's loads of stuff that boxing does give you, and I think self self discipline and self esteem it helps massively with for sure. Definitely, I feel I feel we just get yes, yeah, the self esteem, the confidence, it gives you that empowerment um so i you know um when i got in business for myself at like 24 25 years of age i used to run sales companies and as i said at the start there's parallels between boxers and people in, in business especially sales people because it's all about mindset and it's a bit like boxing as well because at the end of the month if you haven't put in the work it shows up in, on your commission and in boxing, if you don't put in the work, it shows up in, in, in the ring. You could look all good on the pads and you can all look, look good off the phone. But the moment that you're tested and you're under those lights, it really shows who's been putting that hard work in. And for me, when I learned boxing or certainly got into that environment, it gave me that confidence to step into other things, which I probably would have never gone into had it not been for boxing and, and learning that almost the craft of controlling your emotions. That's what I feel like boxing gave me. Yeah, I feel if you, if you box and you step to the ring, then there's not many situations where you can't think, well, hang on, I've boxed, I've, I've gone through all that, and I've gone through the pre-fight nerves. There's not much that you're not going to be able to do if you're able to do that. And I've thought about that during different things that I've done, whether it's skydiving, bungee jumping, or public speaking. I've thought, you know, hang on. I can speak in front of a hundred people because, uh, you know, I got in the ring and fought before, you know, and that was far harder than going out and, and saying some words to some people. So, yeah, I think it gives you that element of, of, you know, that you can face a lot of, uh, a lot of adversity and you can face different obstacles because if you're prepared to put yourself out there and box, then you can confront a lot of stuff in life. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about your book damaged because, uh, there were certain things I was listening to yesterday which really struck home to me. But before I, I go on to that subject, I just want to finish off this this part by talking about schools and boxing. Because when my dad 
Um, he used to go to a school called William Penn back in Dulwich. So I'm basically from South London, Tulsill, Brixton, that kind of area. And my dad always used to say to me, him and his uh, brothers, that's what they used to do. You know, at school, if there was a problem, the teachers used to throw uh, the, the boys into a boxing ring and they used to sort out the differences. And then when they used to get out, there was no problem. Um, now... There's knife crime, there's gangs, there's violence. And um, when I last had my last fight for the Queensbury League back in 2019, part of my pledge was to raise money for Bromley and Downham because they nearly shut down a few times because of lack of funding. And the bit of research I've done is when community, um, you know, like boxing clubs or local community kind of uh, social clubs shut down, violence and gang crime and knife crime does typically go up in certain areas. So I do believe that boxing eradicate some of that and I think if they brought it back into schools I'm not saying it's going to get rid of it forever because I, I think it's slightly impossible but I think it would allow people to have a bit more respect for each other so is that something you would support do you sh share the same sort of view as me or have you got a slightly different view on it Trish? No I agree I mean hey you know obviously I, I spent years traveling around uh, the gyms in America and here's me like really Strictly speaking, I'm a middle-class kid from the New Forest, and I was welcomed in to open and uh, with open arms into all the gyms in Philadelphia, New New York, and Atlantic City, like I was one of their own because it's something that we had in common. So there was no barriers of race or background. There was no privilege. There was nothing. You know, the, the slate was clean. The only thing that we had in common was, was boxing, uh, but that was enough relationships to be formed and developed and for respect you know those guys didn't have to respect me um you know the fact that i've been to university and all the rest of it they didn't have to to treat me as an equal and it seems strange you know that that you might want to be treated as an equal but that was the whole thing the whole point of it was for me to go over there and to, to be a boxer and to be one of them and i i never felt different to anyone else even though i might have been the only white kid that i saw for months on end or even though I was the only one from England, you know, seemingly on the East Coast at the time, um, you know, I, I never once felt like I was a, a, an intruder or that I didn't belong. And yeah, boxing took down those barriers uh, and made it made us all equal. And the only thing that we were really judged by was how good we were in the ring. But even then, you know, that didn't matter in terms of the social pecking order. We were all still sort of all on the same team, sharing the same gym. Mm. I've, I've heard people refer to it as a great equaliser because the moment you step through those those ropes, no matter whether you're you know, black, white, gay, straight, uh, old, young, rich, poor, doesn't matter which part of the world you're from, you're on the equal playing field, you know, and um, I think that's why people get, get a lot of respect for each other. Even if you beat someone up or get beaten up, there's that respect straight away at the end of it. Yeah, but even so, there were gyms in there were some gyms where I never sparred, and I would still go in there like on a daily basis and train. And you know, by the end, you know, after a few, few days, few few few, uh, few weeks, you know, you go from a head nod to a hello to a you know, what time are you in tomorrow? To what did you do this weekend? To you know, you know, oh, you know, where are you from? And all the rest of it, it just builds and builds and builds. Just you know, that sort of camaraderie from being around the gym with them. Uh, but yeah, you know, maybe it goes up a, a, another level when once you spar with the guys, for sure. Yeah. So um, this actually brings me on to the book then, because um, I've been listening to a few of your, your, your interviews in and around, you know, your book Damaged. Um, am I right in saying it's boxing and, and, and trauma? Is that is that the... Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is about chronic brain injury. So it's not about the acute fight injury, fight, the acute damage that's sustained on fight night. So a lot of people, when they talk about damage in boxing, they are instantly thinking of Michael Watson, Gerald McClellan, yeah. and Benny Kid Perrette, and all the tragedies we've had over the years. But what damage does is looks at CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and it looks at the long-term damage. So when the brain is damaged through boxing, it doesn't necessarily show itself straight away. It can be 15, 20, 30 years down the line when the toxic protein in the brain towel starts closing stuff down. And, um, yeah, so that's what it's about. It's about the chronic, uh, Ill, the chronic illnesses related to it. And so the, the links with Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's and so forth as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you, you spoke about this plenty of times on interviews, but uh, Muhammad Ali obviously having Parkinson's. I know they didn't actually diagnose it as CTE. Um but that, that for me when I was younger was a bit of realisation that you can really suffer long-term damage from boxing. But I think the, the, the thing that really sort of frightened me a bit, Trish, even though I'm not a pro and I don't ever want to become pro, um, is when I watched that film uh, which Will Smith played um, the doctor in um, Concussion. I know it's not boxing, it's NFL, but principally, you know, you're getting you know, licks to the head and, you know, you're, you're taking some serious blows. And then I started thinking about boxing. And then in your book, you were talking about the, the sparring. You know, I think one of the fighters you said, uh, is it Mickey Ward? He said that 90% of his damage came from his sparring, not actually the fights. And my favourite part of training every single week is the sparring. Uh, I typically spar down boxing booth uh, Friday mornings with some of the Queensbury boxers. And then on a Sunday... It's the pros, it's the amateurs, it's the keep fitters. They all jump in together and you, you kind of spar. And even though that these people will go, you know, they, they try and, you know, um, you know, only go as strong as they you know, need to. They don't, they don't want to knock anyone out. Every so often you do get a bit of a blow to the head, Trish. And I sometimes come out, come out of there and think, what long-term damage have I actually just suffered there by just getting a couple of right hands? Um, and you kind of... You kind of don't want to even admit it. You kind of go home and think, no, I'll be all right, I'll be all right. But then with your book, it, it, it really does highlight that if you keep if that keeps on happening over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you, you can start suffering some major damage. Yeah, it's all miles in the bank. and No one knows how much is too much. You know, I've got my own concerns after, you know, boxing over a 10-year period of going to the club, you know, every, every Tuesday and Thursday, and depending on the club, every Monday and Wednesday. And then obviously when I was in America for, weeks on end um yeah i mean it, you know i think you know it, it's tough i think if you're if you're not doing it it's, it's hard to say isn't it i can't say who's going to be okay and who's not we don't have the answers and there's lots of research currently being done about it but you know it certainly seems to be people people are coming out of the amateurs somewhat damaged now because people are having such extensive amateur careers uh, and that's even before they've laced up the gloves as a pro. And obviously, Evander Holyfield's got a fight coming up. He's 59, and he boxed, I want to say, 10, 10 years as an amateur and then 30 years as a pro. You know, it's ter you know, those guys, it's terrifying to think what his, his mileage is and how many times he's been hit around the head. And yeah, um, yeah, so I think it's probably, you know, people like you and I who've maybe done it at a smaller end are probably, you know, we've probably rolled the dice and what will be will be, but the ones that seem to be most at risk, obviously, are the guys that are 
20, 30 year veterans who've been doing it week in, week out all this time. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it, we're talking about the unknown, but you, you can only imagine, obviously, it's not great for you. The more, you know, the more, the more damage you take, or the more hits you take, the worse it's going to be for you down the line, for sure. I've definitely seen, um, I mean, you used a word, a very, very significant word to all this, which is the shift in culture. And when I was younger, when I was 14 years of age, boxing down Bromley and Downham, and, and, and bless it, I mean, still alive, a guy called Rev, Reg Foster, very old school guy, uh, was a doorman. You should show me all these scars where people used to bite him at, on, on the door and people used to pull out bats and uh, crowbars and sometimes other weapons and they, he used to have fights with them. And he was really old school, very, very tough man. Even at a ripe old age, he could, you know, he could still get into the boxing ring and, uh, you know, put, put, you know, put you through your paces. Um, back then it was almost like getting there and have a fight almost. Um, but now as time has gone on, even Bromley and Downham, they've become a lot more sort of professional inverted commas. And since I've been training with Charlie B over the last few years, and he's kind of become right-hand man to Adam Booth, even I can see the way he's changed, the way like he treats sparring. And um, the macho, the alpha male type thing back in the day, even for me, was to get in there and try and hurt the person. But now it really is like practicing and and maybe working off the back foot. And I just think, you know, look, it's a bit rich for me to say this because, you know, I've, I've not contributed like you have to to box interest with your books and stuff and, and doing interviews, etc. But I definitely support what you say about changing the culture and it doesn't have to be so macho. It's not about hurting each other. It's about learning and then leaving the real fight into the actual boxing fight or match. Yeah, I mean, hey, I was there too. And, you know, I can learn from my experiences. I was, you know, when I was boxing, I used to work the doors as well. And I remember I worked... So me and a, it was a it was a boxer called Steve Blackford who did, was a very good boxer out of Cornwall. He used to have a rivalry with um, Scott Dan in the amateurs, and um, Blackie and I would work in um, we go to a spa in Truro, uh, ABC on a Wednesday night, and then we'd go and work the door in a, in a club called the Twilight Zone straight afterwards, and we would beat the living daylights out of each other and think it was hilarious. And we thought you know it was quite big and quite clever the fact that we you know, be going back to work the doors with black eyes and having having battered each other and had a right tear up. And it was great. You know, it's part of the brotherhood of boxing. Obviously, wasn't I didn't know then what I know now. And I probably wouldn't have done uh, done what I did. Or I didn't, probably wouldn't have celebrated it the way that I did and, and thought, yeah, that was great, you know, great, great work and all the rest of it. But that's, like I said, that's the culture. One thing I will say about the sparring and stuff, and I've, I've said it in a few interviews is, um, you know, some of the, some of the hardest sparring I've seen that I would least like to be involved with has been the body sparring at the Ingle gym mm-hmm. and where it is basically a hundred percent and that they, 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 they go for you up there. And, uh, it, you know, it's going to sound watered down for anyone who hasn't seen it. They'll be like, Oh yeah, it's body sparring. You know, you never get hit. You know, probably been hundreds of people carried out of the Ingle gym from being hit to the body and it's ferocious because the intensity is so high you know and people people know that obviously you know if you don't get your arms in the way then you're going to be going down and out is it as dangerous low trish what's that is it as dangerous i mean obviously no 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 no. no, not at all that's what i'm getting at you know that's what they're doing they're saving the head sparring for when it's 
when it needs to come in. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're putting it, they're putting the, you know, and uh, you know, for, for a bit of timing, a bit of distance, and a bit of space. They're just bringing in, the, you know, they're bringing the head spar nearer the nearer the end of of camp. So rather than do sort of two, three times a week hard for ten weeks, that's not the way they work. Mm. I mean, I know you've mentioned the word, and I've said it: uh, culture, shifting the culture, and it, things as it don't have to be so macho and so alpha male type. But I mean, really and truly, how how to sh- change the culture? Because it's obviously going to be, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take probably decades. Yeah, I think so. You know, in terms of so one of the ways uh, one of the top neurologists explained it to me, and as a guy who is relatively physically fit and, and wants to try and always maximize his ability performance wise one of the one of the top neuro- neurologists a guy in las vegas called dr charles burnett said to me you should say um you know the way that you would explain it say, is if you've got a head injury or you you've got a concussion and you don't and, and you're not feeling great then you shouldn't train because you're not going to be able to achieve your maximum potential so if you say to someone you know you shouldn't box because you've got a concussion because you're because because you're hurt then instantly people are going to dig their heels and say oh no i'm not you know it's boxing what do you expect but if you actually turn around and say you know you're not going to perform optimally because you've got head injury you know you're best off sitting out and then you'll come back stronger um you know there's there's it's that way that you do it and, and say to people you know you're not going to be able to optimally perform by ignoring any kind of damage and going through it. In fact, obviously, you're going to be putting yourself more at risk. But obviously, what do you want to do in the gym? You want to be able to perform. So there's no point going ahead. And in fact, I've recently done a podcast with Kieran Farrell, who uh, never fully recovered from his fight with Anthony Crawler, And he had a brain bleed and couldn't fight again. And he ignored several warnings where he had headaches after he'd been sparring Michael Conlon. Uh, he was lying to his coach about uh, his nutrition. He was then lying to his coach in the corner about how he's feeling. And all these are severe red flags for me from a neurological standpoint, but they're all part of the culture that, you know, should be infiltrated to make sure that these guys are looked after. And obviously, had Kieran addressed any one of those three points, he might not have been in the position that he ultimately found himself in. Yeah, what what I love about what you're saying there, because um, even Charlie Beat, going back to uh, him and obviously the culture down Boxing Booth, I've never trained with Adam Booth directly, uh, but I can only imagine they're going to be on the same page. Um, Charlie says the same stuff. Uh, not so much about sparring. I have heard him speak about that before, but more so towards training itself. So... As a as a as, as a man, Trish, you probably can uh, vouch for this. I'm 35 years of age, and as I've grown, you know, starting to get a bit more mature, rather than be, I've got to train every single day, and I've got to absolutely beast my body, and I've got to do this beast mode stuff, and I've got to be a you know a, a hero. In actual fact, he says to me, no, you need you need to some days you need to train twice a day, so it'd be high intensity, and then. Maybe Sam, you know, train twice a day and then have more days off in the week. So rather than train every single day and burn yourself out, which I used to do every single week and find myself so low in energy and I just couldn't even keep my eyes open at work. 
Now I'm taking more time time off, but I'm doing more training in the week if that makes sense. Because I'm you know doing what once in the morning, once in, uh, of an evening, and it's the same sort of principle with kind of sparring. You know, don't go in there just just to go in there and have a fight. Go in there and actually apply certain things. And if you don't feel totally up for it, don't go in there and 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 just try and do it to be uh, a hero. Come away, reset yourself. Get your energy back, get your head back in, in, in the game, and then go back out in there with 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 the mindset of you're going to be you're going to be the best version of yourself. Yeah, it's very hard because obviously when you look at trying to change the culture in boxing or speaking about trying to change the culture, you're looking at a very old fashioned sport. So instantly, as soon as you start trying to talk about changing the culture in sport, people start to have heart attacks which it doesn't need to be, but, you know, you sort of alluded to different things there. You know, we we know so much more about performance now than we have ever done. And there's no reason not to use the stuff that's at our disposal. So you talk about training there and optimal training. You know, these guys, boxers, you know, are going to need some recovery days. And um, they are going to need some, some, some days where they get some slack. And then they're going to need some hard days where they're going to have to, train their nuts off for hours and hours it's just it's about balance and obviously monitoring how those fighters work and i know um shane mcgregor and his guys use these fitness trackers that i use whoop and um you can monitor your recovery you can monitor your sleep and 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 uh general health and well-being with it as well so those you know things like that you can follow and listen literally listen to your body um and i follow it routinely and i know you know if i've had enough sleep and what i what i expect of myself that day and if i'm in a green day as opposed to a red day what i might be able to deliver and, and if i need to take a day or take two days off um you know i'm quite fortunate i've found uh i found a good place for my body to the point that i went on a holiday with, with my kids last week and i basically spent all week in the red because i was having late nights with the kids having a few shandies and eating lots of cake. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my body, you know, while it was all nice and gluttonous at the time, my body was just in a bit of shock because I'm quite regimented and, you know, I go to sleep between 10 and half 10 and I wake up between seven and half seven. I eat clean. I train at the same sort of, you know, I train either uh, mid morning or mid afternoon, depending on my schedule. Uh, and, you know, my, my food intake is balanced. You know, three meals, two snacks a day, pretty much routinely. So my and since I got back off holiday, when I should be obviously back nose to the stone, my days have all been green days. But it's obviously my body just, you know, just doesn't like all the stuff that's not particularly good for it, didn't respond to it. So, yeah, there's a lot to be done in terms of changing the culture because um, it's tough, isn't it? When you go to different gyms now you know you see some really sort of backward thinking whether it's people still starving themselves to make the weight or dehydrating themselves or um you know the most bizarre strength and conditioning things you've ever seen that aren't transferable at all, at all to boxing or stuff that you know anyone with a brain would have stopped doing in seven in the 70s it's crazy but then you know boxing is dragging itself kicking and screaming into the 21st century it's way behind the curve with other sports yeah. But by and large, there are some people, you know, when you see some of the SEC guys, you know, they're obviously clearly very sports specific and they're doing great things. But um, by and large, you know, if you go, go to the amateur club, you know, some of my old amateur clubs and so forth, they're probably doing exactly the same things that I was doing there in the mid 90s. Well, um, so when I used to box for Bromley and Downham, uh, 
uh, it was used, used to be on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night for two hours, seven till nine. Uh, there's a few things I remember that used to st- stand out for me. And I used to think, even back then, I found it a bit crazy, but I just went along with it because it was the culture. You wasn't allowed to drink for two hours. Not one drink. You used to sneak off to the toilet and pretend you were going to the toilet and actually stick your head under the tap drink. And they used to come in. If they used to catch you, they used to make you do like burpees or something crazy. Because their mindset was, you can't drink in the fight, so you need to get used to not drinking. Which, which is which is bonkers. Um, they used to make you train all the way up until the fight. So if you had a fight on Saturday, you were training up until Friday and you were going absolutely ballistic. And the last thing was no, no strength training whatsoever. Um, their mindset was uh, if you're doing weights, you're getting slow. Now, obviously, there's different types of weight training and different kind of strength and power and, and everything else. Um, but they're the things that used to stand out for me. I used to think it quite bizarre. And then when I went into more of a professional environment, again, I'm not a professional, but I used to train around the professionals. And um, I used to sponsor Bradley Skeet down the Ibox gym and also Sam Webb. And I used to train down there with Al Smith. Um, and then obviously with Charlie B over a boxing booth and stuff. And the culture is completely different. You know, drink loads of water. Do not train right up, up until you fight. Do the right strength training, not hypertrophy stuff, you know, all this other stuff. So, yeah, it's it's mad because the, I feel like some of the amateurs are still stuck in their ways. Yeah, 100%. I, I remember, I remember um, before one of my fights, you know, I was training in sweatsuits and the, I went on the Friday before I fought on the Saturday, I went for the longest run I'd ever done to try and think, I was trying to get my mind right, thinking that I need to be the fittest I've ever been, so I need to go further than I'd ever gone. And I was in my late teens, so I was probably old enough to know better, but I didn't, you know, so I was wearing a sweatsuit in training and run longer than I'd uh, ever run before, and I wasn't eating because I used to read how fighters couldn't eat before, uh, couldn't eat before a fight. And I wasn't even struggling at the weight. I just thought that's what happened. I thought you weren't supposed to eat, you had to run your nuts off and wear a sweatsuit. And I just thought that was what was done. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Um, you uh, touched on Holyfield earlier. Um, I know he was taking the place of Oscar De La Hoya because sadly he got COVID and he had to step out. Um, look, uh, with, this, with this whole sort of Jake Paul, Logan Paul scenario, um, I, I've got a view on it. Um, and... You know, when Floyd Mayweather fought Logan Paul, I mean, from his perspective, I thought easy money, you know. And I know there's a lot of people out there that were saying it's ruined his legacy, etc. But let's just talk about the old, you know, these older fighters now, like Holyfield, Oscar De La Hoya, even, even a little bit David Hay, you know, he's coming back to fight Joe Fournier. Um, what's your take on it? I mean, do you think it's healthy? Do you think it's good for the sport? Do you think they should be doing it? Or is it all just subjective to the person? Well, the, the, the hard and fast science is your, your brain starts to shrink as you get older. And that means the vessels stretch. That means it's more vulnerable as you get older um, to anyone, whether you fought or not. You, so this is why you start to slow down as you get older, because your brain doesn't function as it used to, and everything starts to slow down. Mm. Um you know, unfortunately, you know, I sit with my grandparents and my parents and all the rest of it. You see it. You see people slow down, and that's what happens. That's what's happening. It's coming from the brain, not so much the body. 
giving up as, a, as the brain starts to slow you all down. So given that the brain is already compromised, probably on a downward spiral from about the age of 40, 45, the fact that people are going in the ring and getting them and getting being punched in the head at nearly 60, I mean, I can't really say anything about, you know, just beggar's belief that A, someone would train someone to do that, B, someone would promote it, C, that someone would televise it, D, that someone would watch it. You know, it's insane. To a lesser extent, the David Hayton, but even then I interviewed David a few weeks ago and David kind of admitted his whole, the whole selling point of the Fournier fight is whether his body hangs together or not because he's had so many injuries. You know, and that's not the best, it's, you know, it's a selling point, but it's not the best selling point. I'd just, I'd just rather not see any of this. You know, I haven't really mentioned those brothers in podcasts or written about them, I don't think, unless it's been by accident. And I've got nothing to say about them. You know, I'm a boxing guy and a boxing journalist, and they're not for me. The one thing that I did find out was when there was a, when Sky Sports, screened a YouTuber's fight, was it last year or the year before, it was quite interesting because we were told that, oh, you know, it's going to attract these these new fans, these new young fans. And the perfect the demographic they were aiming at was my son. And my son was interested in the fight. He was that age. And so I bought the fight. It was the one where Billy Joe Saunders was on the undercard. Yeah. And we bought the fight and we watched it the next morning. We... We was, I fired it up for my son the next morning. He fast-forwarded it to the start of the YouTuber's fight, and at the end of the YouTuber's fight, he killed the TV and went back to his room. And that was it. And he's got no interest in boxing, had no interest in boxing before, had no interest in boxing afterwards, didn't watch any of the undercards, not interested in anything else to do with the sport, and he was that target market. But for me, we were being told about these are going to be the new generation of five fans and we're going to attract these people into our sport and you know for me I've, I've managed to see it firsthand he had no interest in boxing at all he's interested in seeing the two youtubers doing what they did yeah well when you when you personally see like you know logan paul and jake paul youtubers coming into boxing um is it is it like a, a initial kind of feeling or thought that you have uh, behind it or are you just, just kind not of... interested next yeah really not interested yeah. yeah, like I mean, yeah, just, you know, I wouldn't even look at the results if it didn't jump off of me on social media. Yeah, I'm not interested. Yeah, would you say it's bad for the sport? It's not. I don't even see it as the sport. Yeah. It's something separate. Yeah, you know, it'd be like saying, you know, if they were going out and playing one-on-one basketball, is it bad for basketball? Not really. You know, it's not. It's not proper basketball, is it? Yeah, the same way it's not proper boxing. It's just. It is what it is. And hey, I know we talked earlier. It takes nuts and guts to step through the ropes, um, and so obviously credit where it's due for anyone who's done that. But in terms of watching fights, obviously I watch fights because it appeals to me because I'm watching them at a certain level. You know, I wouldn't go to, I wouldn't go necessarily go out of my way to buy uh, a fight that has someone zero and two against someone one and two or. 2-0 or, or whatever, you know, and that's what, in essence, people are being charged for. So, you know, it's just it's just not for me. As soon as I hear it, I'm just, you know, if I look through the diary to see what can I write about next week and that's 
on the schedule. I just look down to the next thing and see, well, will, will I write about that one? Because it's just it's not for me. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. The last thing I want to ask you on this point is uh, more specifically, someone like Floyd Mayweather, yeah? Obviously, 50-0. and 0, um, I think the first kind of this transition into this kind of hyped-up YouTube crossover-type boxing was with the Conor McGregor fight. And I've got to be honest, Trish, I did actually really enjoy it. Not so much the fight, but the whole lead-up to it. I, th- I found that quite entertaining, you know, because they were quite at, at each other's throats, you know, with... Uh, you know the, uh, the the trash talking, etc. And then obviously we knew we knew how the fight was going to end. But now with Floyd Mayweather fighting someone like a Logan Paul, do you blame him if he's going to get 50, 60, 70, 80 million or whatever it may be? No, but for me that's no different. Him fighting Logan Paul is no different. Than him going and doing what he did with the big show in WWE or going to do a film in Hollywood. It's just another extracurricular activity. I don't see it as a legit sporting fight. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's just his way of making money and more power to him to do what he's done. It doesn't make him 51 and 0 the same way if he lost, it wouldn't make him 50 and 1. You know, it just it wasn't boxing. It's not what it was all about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't say. I see just see them as two very different, two, two separate things. I see sporting, you know, sporting events and then I suppose you call it exhibitions you know, or, or entertainment or sports entertainment, I suppose, if you're going to go down the, the WWE route. Yeah. Okay. So with box interests, um, the landscape, I think in your own words, hasn't changed that much in comparison to other sports over, over the last 10, 20, 30 years or whatever. It's still kind of fairly the same. But one thing I've noticed is, is diet. Okay. Training, certain training uh, regimes in the science, you know, with like, uh, heart rate monitors and everything else but I've seen diet change quite a lot in, in some respects and I'll tell you why I say that I've interviewed Harlan Eubank uh, Brian Jennings and um, sadly Seb Eubank who passed away uh, a little while ago which is really really sad to see but these guys they were athletes and great boxers but all of them were co- plant-based and 15 years ago 20 years ago I don't think that was really a thing so with you being a journalist and being in and around boxing and also being, you know, someone who keeps fit yourself and looks after yourself, you know, the, the plant-based stuff, how, how have you seen that kind of help or hinder certain athletes and boxers? Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, even when you look at all the, all the great athletes, you know, across the sports, because we've written, you know, at Boxing News, we did some nutrition supplements and stuff, and then we had Fighting Fit where we, would speak to people about health and nutrition. And, you know, I remember Vasily Jirov, the, the uh, cruiserweight who fought James Tony back in about 2000. He was a vegetarian back then and, you know, almost a bit of a pioneer in that respect. But, you know, when you look at some of the great athletes, some of them are vegetarians and some of them might be plant-based and, and some of them eat meat. I mean, there's no hard and fast solutions to what's right and what's wrong. I think, you know, I'd love to think people were more, uh, you know, that there was a lot of progression about nutrition, but I still think too many people's go-to thing is to starve themselves. And then so so many people balloon up in between fights. You know, it's refreshing to speak to Kid Galahad the other day, who is basically just, you know, a few pounds over fight weight and always in the gym and always training. When so many people were like, you know, you're 4-0 and and you're going into a six-week camp. What have you been doing all the time? And why is it called a camp? Why aren't you just in the gym? 
Like, and it, 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 I find it bizarre because, you know, I, I train in CrossFit and, you know, people who are levels above me actually live and breathe it. And I kind of live and breathe it. And it's not my, it's not my job, but it's making me a fitter, stronger, fitter, faster human being for life and hopefully life as it, as it comes down the road. And I, I don't see that as a hardship. Whereas, you know, I still see people saying, oh, I'm not going, I'm not having a Christmas meal or, you know, no birthday cake for me. And like, well, you can do all of that stuff. You can live a normal life, but you also need to maybe live a slightly different way, modify your lifestyle. It doesn't need to all be, um, you know, one or the other, feast or famine. You know, there's a, it's perfectly easy to have an 80-20 balance through your life, through nutrition without having to fast and without having to sacrifice turkey of all things. Like why can't you ever why can't you have a turkey meal at Christmas? And a bit of Christmas pudding if you if you watch your calories. If you you're allowed two and a half thousand calories a day and you're an athlete, then why don't you have two thousand seven hundred on Christmas Day and two thousand two hundred on Boxing Day? Yeah. You know, what's what I don't I don't get the science. I don't get what people are coming from. Oh I'm not you know, and then the other stuff, oh, you know, my friends are out, you know, partying at two o'clock in the morning. I'm in bed. Well, so what? That's your choice. You know, when your career, when your boxing career is over within 10 years or 15 years, you can do all that stuff. Yeah. You know, clubs will still be open and all the rest of it. I don't, I don't get this whole thing about sacrifice because, you know, it's not hard to live a clean, healthy life without having to make huge sacrifices. You know, big deal if you're a designated driver. It doesn't mean that you can't have a have a good night with friends. Yeah. You know, you haven't got to be out on it, like, out, out all the time. Same way that you does, doesn't mean you can't ever do it. You know, maybe you can't get blasted a few times a year. But it's crazy. I, and, you know, I, I still, you know, like I said, boxing's in the dark ages. And it, it's amazing that people live how they live. And, you know, if you're, if you're an athlete, particularly now, and Chick had did put it well the other day, when he was going into that fight with Jazza Dickens, he's like, I've trained most days for 19 years and he's had an eight-week camp. Like, how's he going to be better than me? Mm. You know, and it's, it's, you know, it kind of, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I find it, I find it all frustrating when I hear this stuff and see this stuff or back, you know, back to the gym after having two weeks off. Like, well, why have you had two weeks off to a four-rounder? Yeah. Like, what have you done in two weeks? Yeah. You know, have you been sat around like a potato eating chips and chocolate? You know, I just, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why you would do that if that's your job. And I fell out in, in, a, in an amicable way. I remember falling out with the boxing writer, Kevin Mitchell, who's done the other sports for The Guardian. He's done tennis and rugby and stuff. I remember we fell out in the early 2000s about this because he was talking about rugby players who sort of went out after, after a match and, got pissed off and all the rest of it. And I was saying, well, hang on, they're professional rugby players. They've got a match on a Wednesday night or whatever. Like, they should be, you know, living the life and having a protein shake, getting recovery in. You know, ice bath, I think, might have changed more. But he was contending, like, no, for team building, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and they need to release and all the rest of it. I'm like, well, can release afterwards. You know, just live the life. Yeah. Chances are as well. I think if they live that life, it will make the transition into real life afterwards easier as well because they're in a they're in a more disciplined routine than being stop start stop start and fast famine fast famine and all the rest of it. You know, I, I don't know. I just it, it 
still blows my mind that people live, you know, live that way. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you something before this part, but you just touched on it, so it's a good time to segue into it. But life after boxing, but you know, I've I've interviewed a few footballers. Uh, the one that stands out for me about this subject is Anton Ferdinand. Um, and I spoke to Kieran Richardson, uh, used to play for Man United, and I asked him the same question. I said, like, you know, foot- footballers are, are known to earn a huge amount of money as they're playing, but they're also known that uh, sometimes they can be taken advantage of. You get these financial advisors that tell them to put their money into some kind of concept, and before they know it, all their money's gone. Um, and then after football, because they don't know anything else but by football, you know, they, they keep that lifestyle up and their money gets burnt away. And before they know it, they're turning to drink, drugs, etc. And I think boxers are, are definitely, you know, ca- can go down the same path. You know, what can be brought in, like the education about, you know, the mindset or the momentum that you need to carry you through into normal life or into a new business after the sport or boxing comes to an end? The education that, you know, you're still going to be a young man or woman when you retire at 35, call it 35 for argument's sake, and you've got a life ahead of you and you need to prepare for that. I spoke to a guy who didn't win a world title, but he was right on the cusp a few times, relatively recently, in the last few years. And he had a couple of years left when we spoke and I said, what, what are you going to do after boxing? And he's like, no, no plans. And I'm like, no, but like, you know, what are you going to do? Like in, in your, in your days, what are you going to do? He's like, well, you know, the idea is to make enough money so that I can buy a house and retire. And like, do you know what percentage of people could probably do that in boxing? I have no you idea. Know, probably less than 2%, maybe less than 1%. Where you retire at 35, you can buy a house outright and not have to work again in any form. Like, how much you, are you going to need to live off? You know, if you've got a couple of kids and you've got another 50 years ahead of you, you know, you're going to need some serious money in the bank. And people seem to have this idyllic notion that, you know, you hit the lottery, you get Mayweather-type money and you retire and, and that's it. And, you know, it just doesn't happen. That's not the way it is. So the people aren't equipped for it, and you know they need to they need to know that they have things. in Robert Smith, I think, who's uh, general secretary of the British Boxing Board of Control, he said it best. You know, really, you know, you guys are self-employed workers. Your job ends at thirty-five. You're going to need to go into another form of self-employment. Yeah. You know, so you need to be prepared for that. You need to be prepared for what it what it takes, and um, you know, sometimes it can be very humbling. You know, I did a podcast with Wayne Elcott, who. Granted, I think he really liked his nine to five working for BT, but he was going from finals guy to working, and I think this was through his career as well, to working as a, a guy who did installations for BT at people's homes. And, um, you know, that you hear sobering stories of former champions packing groceries. I think Bobby Chiz did that in America and stuff. Uh, but, you know, that's real life, and there's nothing to be ashamed by that. We've all got to earn a crust. We've all got. We've probably all had jobs that we didn't want at some point. Yeah, I know I certainly have. We've all got to bite the bullet and put food on the table, and that's that's life. You know, unfortunately, hey, I'd love every fighter to get out thirty-five, health intact, few million in the bank, and all the rest of it, and not have to work and live a gloriously long and happy life afterwards. But that's not the reality of the situation. You know, you've got the best part of fifty years to kill. 
trying to look forward and not look back over your career as well and all that you've done because your life is ahead of you and not behind you. Yeah, I think, it. you know, when I got into sales as well, Trish, it's not the same, but on commission-based and um, there's no floor, as in you've got no, like, basic wage, but then there's no ceiling. You know, I, I've seen young guys start their sales careers and within within six months or 12 months, they're earning five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand pounds a month. And you start giving that to a young guy at 20, 25 or below 30s, they're blowing it on cars, they're blowing it on watches, they're blowing it on nights out, drugs and all that kind of stuff. And they, and they think it's going to last forever. And what they don't plan for is like five or 10 years, 15, 20 years ahead of them. And <clears throat> there's, only, there's only still a few that I know that have put their money into businesses and into assets and they're planning for the future. But it's so difficult to tell a young person almost a young kid, and I say that in the most respectful way, you know, you're 22, 23, 24, 25 years of age, you're earning 10 grand a month or whatever it may be, or let's say a young fighter who's just earned 50 grand or 100 grand, don't go and blow it on a watch, don't go and blow it on something else, go invest it into an asset that's going to pay you all the time. I saw a boxer, an American boxer, I had never heard of his name before, and I can't even remember his name. He said, I fought in 2007, and I'm still getting paid for that fight. And they said, what do you mean? He said, I bought a house with that money and I'm still getting paid every single month for that fight. And I thought that is such a bloody good lesson for so many people to uh, to pick up on. And I just don't think it's broadcasted enough, you know? No, for sure. And then obviously, you know, with boxing, you do have those unsavory people around fighters who are telling them to do this, that and the other with their money and bad investments <clears throat> and bad advice and, and all the rest of it. You know, I spoke, you know, there's more than one guy in the Boxing Hall of Fame who has employed managers, financial advisors, people to look after them. And they've basically said, look, look after all my stuff. This is what you're on the payroll for. And they've spent thousands upon thousands employing these people. And then they've had a check through the post saying, you're bankrupt. You owe the IRS quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, you've got to, you can't, you know, you need to make sure that you do trust the people around you to do the job. Also, you need to, you need to have your own element of understanding. And, you know, there's, there's only so much, you know, when you're 21, 22, you know, unfortunately, that's the, that's the time of life where people do learn harsh lessons and, and can learn harsh lessons or they continue to make, you know, or, or history starts to repeat itself. Um, but, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, there's no, there's no hard and fast solution for that apart from trust the people around you, uh, but also have a good idea of what's going on with your own financial situation. Have a, have an eye forward because, you know, in boxing, like you know, we, I mentioned Kieran Fowler there. He goes into a big fight with Anthony Corolla, never earned another payday in boxing. You know, from a fight again after that, no point planning for or saying I'm going to get this next time. I'll get this next time because you're not promised it. Yeah, so true. Trish, you, you look, uh, first time I've ever spoken to you, um, you come across like regimented, someone who's got their feet firmly on the ground, someone that is, you know, very, very clear about, you know, your future. Um, on the note of like planning for the future, because I'm a big believer of setting goals and, and, and planning and obviously being disciplined towards it and committing. Um, what's the future for you then, mate? Because you're keeping yourself fit. You've obviously got Boxing Life Stories, which is your podcast. You've written a few books. I think you just got a book deal as well. Am I right in saying? 
Yeah, she's one of those aforementioned guys who trusted all his fortune to advisors with a friend of mine, Matthew Saad Mohammed. Yeah. Uh, and I'm writing the his life story. So Matthew and I were good friends back in the early 2000s. Um, he passed away in 2014. We agreed that I would write his life story before, you know, long before he died. Back in 2001, actually, we signed a contract for a literary agent. Uh, but he was... Um, he was no longer the name that he once was and I hadn't really started out on my career properly by then so we couldn't get a deal but I still kept the contract and uh, and you know for me it was like a promise to him to do the book and so uh, I've got a publisher to do that book which will be next year um, Plow on Boxing Life Choice we just hit episode 150 with Ricky Hatton um, it was a real landmark because that means I basically put out an episode every week for three years so i'm taking some time off this month to actually assess the future a little bit and uh we've been running quite hard and fast we mentioned obviously the book damage that came out earlier this summer and then there was a lot of press publicity that went into that um and then uh and then obviously i write for ring magazine boxing scene and boxing news been doing the podcast so i've just taken this month really to step off the treadmill a little bit uh have a little bit of downtime, self-care, time with my dogs, a bit more time in the gym and a bit less time on the road um, and a bit more planning for the future um, to see where we're going to go. But, uh, hey, I think, you know, my, my long-term goal is to be 90 years old or like Jerry Eisenberg, 90-odd years old and still writing. You know, I don't ever plan on retiring or stopping working. Um, and I do have a dream of I live in a lovely spot in the New Forest that I love dearly, but I do have a dream of either having a holiday home, maybe somewhere in the Mediterranean or somewhere down in Cornwall, but somewhere with sea views where I can sit on a balcony with a laptop and write stuff about boxing and my experiences in boxing. That would be my, that you know, I can see that whether that's when I'm 60, 70, 80, or in three years from now, I don't know, but that's what, that's the dream uh, to have that, you know, to be outdoors, to be able to write, to be able to follow my passion and to still be in boxing, those are the, those are the goals. From, from a health perspective, I know we touched upon that. Um, you know, the idea is to still push to be, um, to be better than I was yesterday, which is a cliche way of going about things, but I'm aware of a, an, an inevitable decline that will come at a certain age. I'm 42 now, but I still see inspirational guys on like the main field at CrossFit, when you see the CrossFit games, you see the 60 year old guys there with rippling six packs and pecs that are popping out and stuff and doing crazy things. Like, you know, they're still able to do muscle ups and do sub six minute miles and all the rest of it. And, you know, I, I long to be able to do all that stuff. You know, David Hay messaged me relatively recently when I put a deadlift video up and he said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, what, you know, if I can do that now, then maybe when I'm 60 and the kids are moving into their into their homes or whatever, then maybe I can help pick up and move some of their stuff for them that weighs quite a lot of, you know, that moves quite a lot of stuff. And it goes back to my own life, really. One of my last memories of my dad, who passed away in 2012, was he froze in his, in his he had an armchair at, my, uh, at his house, and he froze in the armchair, and I couldn't get him up, and he, couldn't, he wasn't strong enough to squat up. Yeah, he'd have Parkinson's and stuff. And obviously, you know, I kind of think if I'm able to squat you know, 180, 200 kilos, then there's a good now, then 30 years from now, I might be able to just stand up on my own. 
without anybody needing to help me and stuff. And certainly my kids not seeing it and stuff, which is quite a humbling experience. So the idea is for me to keep as fit and healthy as I can for as long as I can. Again, so I'm as useful for my kids as possible. You know, my son who's 15, a little bit embarrassed by me now, but he wants to, he still wants to play football in the back garden. And, you know, I'm fit and healthy enough to just about beat him in sport. And it's funny because it's at that age now. And again, it goes back to my own dad. I was beating him at sports when I was eight, nine years old. It's sad. It's quite a sobering thing. So I'm going to continue to kick my son's ass for as long as I can until he legit, legitimately takes the mantle off me. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, that's the idea for, behind, the, behind the fitness really. It's to try and be as useful for my kids as long as possible. What would you say the secret is to... Uh sort of wellness, health, fitness, preservation? Obviously, being in the gym all the time, of course, but any other secrets, any other like, sort of tips that you got, Trish? I would say it's not being in the gym all the time and knowing when to switch off and knowing when to ease back. You know, that's a key thing. I mean, I've had different, different points of my... Over the last sort of 10 or 12 years, I've had different points where things have taken me through different plateaus. Um, one thing was getting uh, a handle on my sleep. For the longest time when I was working at Fox News, I would routinely get by on four hours sleep and think, yeah, I'm killing it. I only need four hours sleep. And in fact, not I wasn't killing it. It was probably killing me. And there's all links to, to lack of sleep with Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's down the line as well. People used to look at people like Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan who were historically guys who would, trade out or trade or trade on the idea that they only got four hours sleep because they're always working. Both had neurological deficits in later life. Um, so yeah, realizing I once once I started tracking my sleep, that was a bit of a game changer, going from four hours to sometimes eight, nine hours sleep a night. That was a big thing for me because your body obviously needs time to repair and recover. Dialing in my nutrition and learning a lot more about nutrition. It's not as complex as people think. People think, oh, supplement this, supplement that. It's not really. All you need is in regular foods. Um, it's not as scientific as people think it is. And I think this is where it gets me with the boxing side of the nutrition thing as well. Is it's not rocket science. But people seem to think you either have crisps and chocolate or you're having nothing. And it's, it's not that. There's loads of good stuff you can have that's good for you and healthy. Um so there's that side of things. And in terms of wellness, I mean, I just have, I have a very simple life. I think I have, I want to say it's five or six go-to things that I need to have in my life every week. I need my children. I need my dogs. I need my training. I need my work and my fiance. And I think if I can split my time evenly through a week or certainly a month, split myself that way in, into five, then I'm ticking all the boxes I want to tick. Yeah, that's good. I'm, you know, obviously, I want I want to spend time with my fiance. Uh, kids, obviously, goes without saying. The dog walks is, again. That's been another game changer for me because where I live, I probably wouldn't go out and just go for a walk for an hour, hour and a half every day, just to be mindful. But it gives you that that space and clarity that you need. And you know, if people are talking about wellness. One of the first things people will say is switch off your devices and go out for an hour. Well, unless you've got a dog, you don't really have a reason to do that. Mm. My dog's given me a reason to do that, to, to switch off, to get away from the noise, to switch off your social media, to switch off your work commitments, and just go away for an hour and just 
just chill out. And to be able to do that hour, for an hour a day, seven days a week, you know, you're looking at banking nearly 30 hours a month of, of you time, which is priceless. Yeah, you can definitely overcome. That's the amount of time people spending a full-time job. Yeah, I mean, I think going, going even when I, I went for a run last night, um, nothing too, you know, nothing too hard. I wasn't going at a, a crazy pace or anything, but I was treating it more like a bit like meditation, just like switch off, yeah. run. It's a little bit dark and uh, start thinking about all the challenges or problems that you might have in your life or your business. And uh, by the end of the run, I'm not saying you solve every single one of them, but you feel a lot better about the challenges. And I think it really, really does help. Um, yes, it's massively therapeutic, isn't it? And then, you know, it's the old endorphin thing as well. Like, no one ever felt bad for going to the gym and training or going out for a run and running or even going out for a walk or walking. Yeah. Like, it's when you don't do that that you start to feel bad. I've got, um, I wasn't going to ask you this, but it's just, it's just come to my mind. And uh, I'm very aware that I don't want to take too much more of your time, Trish. I will wrap this up here shortly. But your. Your take on, because you mentioned about boxers starving themselves to make weight. Let's reframe it. Um, you know, fasting. This is a big thing that seems to be coming up a lot now. Intimate, you know, intermittent fasting. Is that, that's it. Yeah. Ter- terrible vocab um, from me. Um, so doing that or just doing water fasting or dry fasting, what's, what's your take on it? Is it something you've practiced or something you looked into? No, I'm not hugely clued up on it just because obviously I don't have to make any any kind of weight. Uh, if I want to, if I want to um, lose weight, which is often, well, it's, it's really the only goal I ever have, sort of in terms of, um, you know, I never want to put on more weight because I'm always I'm a big dude who, if I didn't train, I'd be massive. Um, I was speaking to my other half about this the other day, and she said the same thing, not just about me but about her as well because. If I don't train, I just start to put on kilo after kilo after kilo. So the only thing I do is obviously I track my calorie intake, and I you know I use my fitness power to the app, and I track my macros, and I take my calories down from you know on average I have about two thousand eight hundred calories a day, and if I want to start losing some, I'll take it to down to about two thousand four hundred a day, and and track it that way. But for me, fasting is not for me because like life's too short, and I enjoy food. Yeah. So, like, I don't need to, I don't, you know, I, I was looking for someone to help me with my nutrition at the start of the year. Uh, and I started to work with Tom at PH Nutrition. Uh, and I think we did about three or four minutes, three or four months. It was great. Learned a load and helped me a lot, particularly with healthy snacks and go-to meals that were easy to prepare. And, yeah, so I worked with Tom for about three months. Before I spoke to Tom, I spoke to another guy who, was shredded and a similar age to me. And I was thinking, well, if he's like that, then maybe the way forward is that is how he does it. And he told me about how he fasts and then does faster cardio in the morning and stuff. And it's just not for me. Um, it's clearly, you know, he looked a million dollars. And in fact, he's been, he's been on the cover of men's health in the past. Um, and fair play to him. But like, like I said, life's too short. And I, I, I want to be enjoying life. And this is where I come from with, in terms of boxing and balance and stuff. I don't live like a monk, you know. I if a fr- you know a friend goes out and says, "Oh, should go out and have a couple of drinks." I'll go out and have a couple of drinks. I don't do it every night. I don't do it every month. But like, you know, I still go out and socialize. Um, same way, you know, there's a new bakery that just opened today. I just posted pictures on social media. Go on and support a local bakery by buying three brownies. You know, life's too short. Do you know, what I mean? you know, I'm sure I'll have 
sustain this week while I might be in a calorie deficit. So I just live a little, you know, it's just, it's life and it's about balance. And yeah, so the fasting stuff, it's not for me, uh, but I can see why people have done it and I can see people getting results for it. Yeah. Uh, Trish, okay, where, um, I mean, my audience, a lot of a lot of them are either people in boxing or, uh, you know, certainly follow, follow boxing. So a lot of people are going to know who you are. But uh, where can they find you? Books, podcasts, etc.? Yeah, so my the most recent book is called Damage, and you can get it from Amazon and uh, from Hamill from Hamilcar, the publishers directly. And I'm at Trish Dixon on Instagram and on Twitter. Good stuff. One more question, uh, Tris. So when I started in uh, sales and started running the sales team, I come up with a bit of a mantra which I try and stick by even today. I'm not perfect at it, but I do my very very best. And here's here's how it goes: Be happy never content. Be happy, never content. Now I've got my own version of what that means. But if I were to ask Trish Dixon, what does be happy, never content mean to you? The complete opposite of what I strive for. Okay. It was funny. You should check out my podcast with Neil McKenzie. The last five minutes, we had this very conversation about happiness and contentment. Okay. And it's, it's ironic that you say that because I think happiness is contentment because happiness is is a one-off emotion that you get by having something or getting something. The same way, and why would you step if if you if you were if you wanted to be happy, why stop there? Why not? Why wouldn't you want to be ecstatic all the time? Why would you just settle for happiness? Yeah, I don't think I don't think happiness is a realistic goal, and I think that's where too many people fall up fall fall apart. And too many people strive for happiness because it's not realistic. Real life sucks badly a lot of the time. You can't walk around and be happy 100% of the time. And if you think that you're going to be able to walk around and be happy 100% of the time, there's a good chance you're probably going to end up feeling quite shit about it because you're not going to be able to get that. If you can get that contentment and peace with understanding you can't be happy all the time, but you're still okay with doing what you're doing, and having moments of happiness that you can share with your loved ones, share with your dog, where you can, you know, achieve what you want in the gym, and where you can eat the food that you want to eat, and all the rest of it. If you're okay with that, then contentment is the key. But the happiness thing, I think it's a unicorn. The same way, like I said, you, why would you why would you settle for happiness if you're not linked? And if you're just happy all the time, then you're going to be chasing being ecstatic. You're going to want the next one. You're going to want the next thing. The next thing that makes you happy, the next thing that makes you happy. If you can just be, then I think that's the key. And so I think contentment is the key rather than happiness. I think if you can find contentment and peace, then that will lead to a form of happiness without chasing something that I don't think is attainable. Yeah, I love your answer, Trish, because it is is kind of different to a lot of my guests. But just for the benefit of why I say it, is I, I realise that life is, you can't be happy all the time. Being a human being is going to be the downs and there's going to be the ups. But my version, my perception of happiness is even in your darkest days, even in a recession, even when things are getting really tough, you can find a silver lining and that is the small version of happiness that you can latch on to. And the reason why I say don't be content, I mean, yeah, look, um, recognize your successes and your accolades, but at the same time, push beyond it because just like you, Trish, want to better yourself every single day, 
I think everyone can do that. And sometimes they fall in cont- into contentment, which is a comfort zone, and then they just don't grow. That's my interpretation of my own saying. Yeah, I think there's an understanding of contentment. And I mean, I, I must say, I've had dark days where there's been no silver lining and you can't see the end of the tunnel and you can't see that you're going to make it through the next 24 hours. So um, so it's a, it's a tough one because, um, you know, I, I there are people out there at their wit's end and I've been there where, you know, there is no end in sight and there is no silver lining. And the only thing I say to that is you've just got to stay in the fight because, you know, you're a lot more useful around than if you're not around. Um, so, yeah, it's a tough one. And I get what you're saying. I mean, some people, I think there's a difference between being content and being aware of being content and being content and being lazy. Mm-hmm. And I think, obviously, when you're content and lazy, that's probably when you start to form bad habits and you're just, you know, you're doing whatever you're doing and you start to feed into negative habits and maybe negative just negativity in general and i think you know i think there's so there's probably two different types of uh contentment conscious and unconscious and if you're consciously content then that's a great thing if you're unconsciously content you could probably do a little bit more last one tris listen you've been a gent uh, you've been exactly how i thought you were going to be you're an absolute superstar thank you very much for your time um I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of your work and uh, yeah keep on doing what you're doing because you're you're contributing massively. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been good to speak to you.